Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It is our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for people and the gospel, and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring. The Christian faith can be difficult to understand at times. As believers begin to think deeper about our faith, questions may begin to arise. And questions are a good thing. They're indications that a person is loving God with all their mind. This series of sermons entitled Questions Christians Ask are responses to some questions I have periodically received. I pray these sermons will stir your thoughts and drive you closer to God. Now, let's begin our time today. We're going to be in in Acts 4, the book of Acts chapter 4. And I encourage you to either turn in your Bibles there or turn on your phone and, and find it through your Bible app or however you might read your Bible. In, I want to say it was October or, or sometime last fall, I, I asked you all for questions that might, that might be rattling around up there and, and you, you didn't maybe have an outlet to ask it. And so I asked you to write out your questions, submit it to me. And I always like those. We always get some very good questions. And, and uh, the one we address today is a very, I think, a relevant question and one that is um, important to, to talk to today, but whoever asked it, I, I'm in for you. I mean, I don't know who did, but I've got it in for you. I'm just teasing. Um, they, they asked, is social justice biblical justice? And that's a good question because that's got a lot of information. I put in a mint before I uh, got up here and I didn't get through it. So, there's a lot of information about that today. There is a lot of questions about that. And, and it, was, it was a good study for me to go through, and I will attempt to respond to it as best as I can, and I will fall short. That is, I will not answer all the questions, and I will, there is so much more that than what I can respond to in the time allotted. But let's give it a shot, all right? And so we're going to look in Acts 4, starting in verse 32. And this passage is the, the newly formed church attempting to help those in need. And it says in Acts 4, 32, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira 
They sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself and with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up, covered him up, and carried him out, and they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband were at the door. And they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at, at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Let's pray over the, let's pray over the word this morning. God, I thank you for passages that teach us about the early church Show us your heart and give us things that we can think on and practice in our life. And God, I think more than anything, I pray that we would have compassion on those with legitimate needs. That we would not become hard-hearted against those who look different than us or those who may not have as much as us but we would be your representative to those people so that they could hear the gospel message and come to know you. Soften our hearts this morning, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I heard an illustration this week I wanted to share with y'all. Let's say, let's say we are going to play some ping pong games. All right? You and I are going to play a ping pong game, and you are really good at ping pong. And you may have to imagine that, but we would not have to imagine that I am not any good at ping pong. I am not good at ping pong at all. But we start to play. It's good time together. We get a little bit of cardio in because we're kind of running back and forth. Not much, but a little bit. And we just enjoy the time together, and we play. And every time we play, you crush me, right? It is like 21 to 2 or 21 to 3 every time we play ping pong. But we enjoy time together, and, and what, what um, is really happening is that you really like ping pong, so you're spending some time practicing, and you've got a, a, a ping pong table at home, and you've got a really good racket, and you've watched videos, and you, you have put time in to become an excellent ping pong player, and I practice when we play. That's all the time I put into it. It's not that important to me. And so I just show up and play ping pong. And you kill me every single time. 
and our games become pretty well known. We've talked to other people, and they say, boy, I'd really like to watch you guys play. So we set up in the fellowship hall a ping-pong table, and people come to watch, and they watch you beat me every single time really bad. 21 to 1, 21 to 2. You're just, you crush me every time. And people start watching. And what happens is that the people watching you beat me over and over again, they start feeling bad for me. They start thinking, boy, that must be embarrassing for Roland because he is getting killed every single time. And so we continue to play, and they say, well, you know, it might be that, the, that, that you, who are really good, you might be getting some pride for being such a good ping-pong player. And, and you have no compassion on, on Roland when you play. It's like you play to win every single time, you know. By the way, that's the point of ping-pong, just in case you to win. So you're, you're playing to win. And, and uh, they, they, maybe Roland is embarrassed and, and they feel bad. And so they devise a plan and they say this, look, you guys, when you guys play a game, what we're going to do is at the end of the game, we'll add up your points and divide it by two. And then that way you both come out the same. And see what that'll do, they'll say, is that that'll eliminate the embarrassment of, of Roland for not having to, to be crushed every time we play, and it eliminates the person who's really good, you, to it will eliminate the pride and, and arrogance that you might have because you're such a good player. It'll compensate for my disadvantage and even out your significant advantage and it'll, it shows that we're fundamentally equal if, if when we finish the game, we come out with the same score. So that'll, that'll make everything good, right? Would it? Or would it, make, would it alleviate all those things? Or would it make me not play very hard at all? Because I know how it's going to end. I know no matter how poorly I play, I'm going to get a bunch of your points. Will you practice as hard? Will you go and practice as hard to, to become a better ping pong player knowing that half of your points are coming to me? Would it eliminate pride and would it eliminate the disadvantage? Would you play as hard would you say it doesn't, doesn't matter, so I won't, I won't play my best because it doesn't matter? Will the rules fundamentally change of the game? The, the goal in ping pong is you win at 21. But if I have one and you have 21 and we split that difference and it's 22, split it in half, then the game ends at 11. Well, that's not the game of ping pong. So... The, the rules have fundamentally changed. Now, this, this game of ping pong, it, uh, this example, it's a little silly, but that is exactly the point of the social justice movement today. But social justice movement doesn't talk about ping pong points. It concerns itself with poverty. And the social justice advocates are not talking about redistributing points in a game. They're concerned themselves with redistributing wealth. 
whatever that might mean, whatever wealth means. And they're not worried about whether ping pong players feel equal or not. They work to make sure that everyone not only has the same opportunity, but they work to make sure everyone has the same outcome. They're not concerned if everyone gets to play. I mean, they are concerned that everyone gets a chance to play ping pong. And that's not a bad thing. If everyone wants to play ping pong, let them play ping pong. But what they want to make sure of is everyone ends the game the same. And doing so, they fundamentally change the rule of the game. Now, I'll admit, as I begin this sermon, there is so much more to say, and I don't know it all. I do not. I suspect that those who really know this topic would be offended about how little I will, I will be able to teach about it. They, but I'm going to try to give you an idea of what the social justice movement is saying and what Scripture has to say. But I will point out that the very beginning, Proverbs 28.5 says this, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. And while I may not understand all that the Bible has to say about justice, and in fact, the more I dug into it, the more I was really a little confused um, and, and came out with some better understanding. Um, so I'm not saying I understand all things, but I did seek the Lord about it. Um, I might feel like I fall more in the evil men camp who doesn't understand justice. But let me briefly define some some words and then see if we can we see if we can move forward like i said when i i don't have enough time i when i got up to the stage i was behind so um as briefly as i can tell you let me define what we're going to talk about today the social justice i'm going to use the word social justice i'm talking about the social justice movement and and it's been a hot topic of late uh, and even though the term's been around for centuries but the christian apologetic research ministry defines defines social justice movement this way it says a political and philosophical concept which holds that all people have equal access to wealth health well-being justice and opportunity regardless of the legal political, economics, and other circumstances. That is to say, and, and yeah, you're not going to get that down, and it's not up on screen. Just understand it is saying that everyone has, no matter where they were born, no matter how poor their parents were, no matter what state they live in, um, everyone has equal everything. Not only equal opportunity, but equal outcome. That is the idea. And we might say it's good to work to give everyone equal opportunities. Sure. But I would believe we would have some, some problem saying everyone should be guaranteed equal outcome. Like I said earlier, everyone should be able to play the ping pong game if they want. But not everyone's guaranteed to win the ping pong game they're playing okay that is that is the idea so in comparison to social justice there's what the bible calls justice right real justice what does the scripture mean when it says justice and 
And when I talk about it today, I'm going to talk about it as biblical justice just to make sure we are, we are tracking. I'm going to refer to it that way. The, the Christian Apologetic Research Ministry, it defines justice as this. The proper and godly behavior that should occur in all areas of life based on Scripture. That is what God calls right. Now, in the very basic sense, we know that justice When I've preached on it, we use it in relation to mercy and grace and say justice means that God says you get what you deserve. And when we're talking in a legal aspect, that is is justice. A murderer who gets justice gets, gets uh, gets the life penalty or probably more accurately the death penalty. That is the proper response. That's a biblical response if someone takes a life. Justice is served when that happens. But what, but what Scripture talks about in justice, especially in the Old Testament, a lot of times, if not most of the time, when justice is mentioned, it's mentioned in relation to the poor. Giving the poor what they deserve. Now, that's, for me, there was a disconnect there. I don't understand what that meant, but I think this is what God's saying. People are made in the image of God. Every person has, they are bearers of the image of God, and thus they deserve respect. They deserve love and compassion. And if there is someone who doesn't have food and is starving, they deserve some help because they are people. If there's somebody who doesn't have shelter, legitimately doesn't have shelter, then they deserve some help. If we see a dog on the side of the road injured, homeless, and hungry, and we say, that moves me, and I bring that dog in, how much more should it be that if there's a human in that condition? That is the idea of justice. I believe when God talks about it with the poor and the widows and the orphans, and, and the homeless and those in need. That's how Scripture in the Old Testament talks a lot of time about justice. When you look at it, God says, I am angry with you because you didn't give justice to the poor. I'm angry with you because the widows and orphans were not getting justice. And it's in connection to the needy a lot of the time. And so when we look at it, we should remember that. Look in Psalms 82, 34. Look what it says. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. See, there is is justice to be done for the needy. He says in Psalm 140:12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted. And look what it says, justice for the poor. Ezekiel 22:29, the people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and the needy, and they have oppressed the sojourner. And look what it says, without justice. They have not done the right thing. God puts enormous stress on charitable acts to those who need it. So why do we talk about justice when we are talking about the poor? Because that's how God speaks of it. 
Justice is giving what people deserve. And as image of God, if there is someone who has a legitimate need, God says, my people should respond. And that's worth thinking about. But that leads to another, one more introductory issue that we have to talk about. What do we mean by the poor? Because I believe when we talk about the poor in Scripture, that is not the poor that we talk about in America. First, I would say that those who we think as poor in this country or those who might categorize themselves as poor have no idea what poverty is until they step into a third world country. Five miles from the border of our country in Reynosa, Mexico, I walked in and saw someone whose house was made up of four pieces of plywood and a piece of metal with nothing else. And that's what they lived in who had a common area with water where they'd take a five-gallon bucket, fill it full of that, and bring it back so they could have some water to wash up with while they made breakfast in, some, in the dirt uh, over a flame outside. And that was 2010. Right now in India, the average income for a year in India is $2,120, average annual income. That means $177 a month. We do not know what poverty is in this country, right? We don't know what poverty is. We have more, ch- I have, okay, I don't know about you, I have more change in my car in, th- that I have lost than some people make in a day, Right? In the little things. I got a, I got a bucket on my, on my dresser where I just throw change in. And, and that's more than some people get in a week in some countries. You, you live in Afghanistan, the average annual income is $530. Yearly income, that's $44 a month. We don't know what poverty is. Now, With that said, there are those in this country that, for different reasons, are poor. And there are those who are poor because of calamity. A a spouse may have died and, and they hadn't been properly prepared. And now that person is in desperate need, maybe for a short time or maybe a long time. There might be someone who whose house burnt down. And they are in a, in a desperate need, and they, are, they, they are, have a legitimate need at this point in time. There might be people who, who have, uh, you know, th- this is what the Scripture talks about, the widows and orphans. There was a calamity in their life, and now they are vulnerable to injustices, that people marginalize them, and they don't have the same opportunities as others. Most of the homeless we know today are homeless because of mental illness. And no amount of money is going to fix that. They need need some help. And so 
what's you know real help so there's there's those that are poor because of calamity there are those that are poor because of criminal exploitation that somebody has preyed upon them and tricked them into giving their savings or whatever and now they're in desperate need and we need to help them you know find justice through our criminal system but guys there are people and this may shock you but there are people poor in this country because of sloth right There's people poor because they just don't want to work. And they will find all kinds of excuses of why they cannot work. And yes, we have a system of government that really enables that kind of behavior. The scripture says in Psalm 128.2, When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, when you do work, it says you'll be happy and it will be well with you. If you work, things go well. You'll have what you need. Proverbs 12, 24 says, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. And Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And that's not talking about overweight. It's just simply saying it's going to have what it needs. When I speak of the poor today in this sermon, I am speaking of those with a legitimate need. I'm not talking about those who are lazy. The Scripture will say, if you don't eat, I mean, sorry, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's what the Scripture says. That's, that's not a valid form of poverty. It says if you're able-bodied, then you've got to work. If you, if you can do something, that's what you're to do. And, that, and, and so that is, when I talk about the poor today, in this sermon, I am talking about those who are legitimately poor, those who have a legitimate need. Our God, who defines himself, by the way, over and over in Scripture, that I am a God of justice, of mercy, and of righteousness. That's one of the more common ways he defines himself. When he, when he defines himself that way, he says also, that God says, if you don't work, you, you don't eat. So we are talking about legitimately poor. The social justice movement has one idea of what poverty looks like, And biblical justice has another idea of what poverty is. We need to keep that in mind. So, this passage in Acts was how the church helped helped those in the body who had legitimate needs. It's not about social justice, but what I want to do is show you how God helps the needy, how the church was supposed to be helping the needy, and compare that with what social justice movement means Uh, says today. So let me just briefly kind of do that as uh, maybe kind of quickly. I've got really five comparisons I want to show you. And so first we see this. Social justice is divisive and biblical justice is redemptive. Look in 32 and 33. 
It says, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Social justice pits one group against another. That is the basis of what they believe. Social, ad, social justice advocates say that there are those who are wealthy and they've benefited from the system. And if you're wealthy, again, whatever that means, whatever wealthy means to them, that if someone is wealthy, they have received that illegitimately. And that there are those who are poor and those poors are oppressed by these oppressor, oppressors who are wealthy. And all of them in the wealthy category are oppressors. It pits people against one another. It makes those who don't have, they begin to feel superior because they say, I have, I have been oppressed and now I must get it over my oppressors. It gives the people who are oppressed the label victim, which is a very powerful label given to people today. Everybody today, it seems like, and I don't mean believers or anyone here, but there's a lot of people who want the label victim. And that's what this does. Again, we talk a lot about wealthy and poor. I've not heard any real clear understanding of what wealthy is and what poor is, but most of the time it is, hey, people who lack, they have something you don't and you deserve the same thing. You deserve the same outcome. You deserve the same ping pong points that they have. After all, you played the same game. And so they want to split that up and divide it. And what it does, it puts wedges between groups of people. And when you have wedges between group of people, you put wedges between people individually, and it's about division. That's not scriptural justice. Look what it says in 32 and 33. They were of one heart and one soul. There was unity there. Those who were, had need, those who owned houses and land, they were together because the unity they had wasn't based in things, it was on the Holy Spirit. The same believer who resided in the one who had houses and lands was the same Holy Spirit who resided in those who had need. And they had, it says, things in common. And no one saw their property as their own. It does not say that everyone saw everyone's property as everyone else's. It, what this is saying is that anyone who had something said, this belongs to God and whatever he wants me to do, I will do that. And if he wants me to sell it, I'll sell it if there's a need. But more importantly, I think, than all that is that while the church was taking care, they had unity and they were making sure that their stuff was up to, under the Lord's leadership, the apostles were able to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ because it wasn't trying to get everyone to have the same stuff. It was saying it is about redemption, because all our stuff is going to burn. Justice 
is redemptive. It says there was abundant grace upon them all, the rich, the poor, no matter what their country they were from, the color of their skin, there was unity, and God was about redeeming them. There was the gospel that was being presented, and abundant grace was all of them. When, when we as believers help those in real need, it might just give us the opportunity to give testimony about the powerful work of Jesus Christ. And great grace might be able to pour down on all. Social justice is divisive. Real justice is redemptive. Secondly, social justice is coercive. Biblical justice is always voluntary. 34 and 35, talk about that. In our ping pong example, you notice I didn't say, no one asked if you wanted to give up your points to give to me. They just said, this is the plan now. This is what we're going to do. And that is the social justice way. The Savior for the poor in the social justice movement is not Jesus Christ, it is the government. They look to the government for, for salvation of the needy, and, and that's not redemptive. The government, they say, must step in and help those who are privileged, those with wealth, again, whatever that means, and it's forced to rectify that illegitimate wealth by paying taxes. That is the forceful removal of the money to distribute it to those and you have no say over who that gets dis displayed, uh, uh, distributed to. So you notice the coercive nature of this. We're not asking you if you want your money to be redistributed. The government will take that money, and then the government will redistribute it however you want to. It is coercive, and you cannot give to where you want it to give, and you cannot not give to where you don't want your money to give. Okay? It is coercive, but that's not the biblical model. We read in Acts there in 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of a land, which by the way, there were owners. There were people who owned land and houses. And it said they would sell them and bring their proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet and they'd be distributed to each as any had needs. These people would voluntarily say, there is someone in the church and God's laid that person on my heart. And so I'm going to go sell my, this house, extra house I have so that money can go to the one person or the, the two, three people, whoever, that I know and care about and God has led me to care for. But it doesn't say everyone were forced to sell their land to give to people all over it was voluntarily, voluntarily done inside the body. And so their property wasn't seen as their own. This isn't some sort of communism. It's simply saying they gave their, their possessions to the Lord and said, however you direct, I will give. We do this here at Rosemont. We have a benevolence fund at Rosemont. We have needs of people in our 
in our uh, congregation here and they have needs every once in a while and you all give voluntarily. Now I know we got two intimidating men at the door, right? And it looks like you have to give to get out. And they're, you know, they're threatening and you might, you might feel like it's not, but it is voluntary. I ask you every time to give as the Lord tells you to give toward benevolence. We are to help those in need. We are. And 2 Corinthians says, and we'll read this in a little bit, but it says, decide in your hearts what you're going to give. Talk to the Lord and let him direct you and then voluntarily give it cheerfully because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. It is not coerced. Social justice is divisive. It's coercive. Real justice is redemptive. It's voluntarily. Also, social justice is based on the external. Biblical justice is based on the internal. We see that in 36 and 37. Here's the touchy subject, right? And I'm going to call it as I see it. The social justice movement is a racist movement. Now, that'll get us banned from YouTube, I'm sure. But it's racist. It is. Because the definition of racism is seeing people based on their color not the content of their character. So this movement that claims its, its main focus is to, to rectify racism uses racism as the basis of what they do. They use philosophies like critical race theory, which simply says that minorities, especially black Americans, they have been oppressed because white Americans have built a society that is racist from top to bottom. Every institution, every business that a white person has done is racism. That's what they say as critical race theory, and that's one of the foundational principles of social justice movement. And that makes us angry, I'm going to guess. And if you're, if you're a black American, it says you're oppressed. And it doesn't matter if you are successful and you've worked hard in school and educated and you've worked and got into your business and you have been successful by world standards in your business and made your way to the top and you were very successful. If you're a black American, you're oppressed. And if you're a white American and you have trouble struggling to pay your bill every month and you cannot make your, you, you have some trouble in education and you haven't done well in that that regard and you just struggle with life it doesn't matter you're an oppressor not because of the what's going on inside but because they look at a skin color and they say you're an oppressor you're oppressed that is the definition of racism that's what critical race theory says that's what social judgment bases a lot of their decisions on now note the acts passage in 36 and 37, there was Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought it to, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What do we know about Barnabas? He's held up as an example. In fact, he's held up as the example opposite of Ananias and Sapphira, not because he was a, a Hebrew person. Not because he was a Levite, not because he was from Cyprus, but because he was a man inside who encouraged people. 
He encouraged people all the time to the point that the apostles stopped calling him Joseph and said, this dude is Barnabas. He's the son of encouragement. Every time he goes somewhere, he's encouraging someone. And he becomes this example of sacrificial giving. He's got a heart for other people to the point that he would sell and give everything he could to help those in need. Barnabas is held up not because of what's outside, but because of what's going on inside. He's an encourager and a sacrificial giver. And that all comes from inside. It comes from Jesus Christ working in him, transforming him to give. And we can go in Scripture over and over again. Think about Zacharias who met Jesus and was transformed from the inside out. doesn't matter what he looked like. He was a short little dude, and he had to climb a tree to see Jesus. It's almost a comical story when we look about Zacchaeus, but he was transformed. He says, I'll give back everything that I've stolen because he was changed on the inside out. All these things are internal. And you cannot tell that Joseph was the son of encouragement and a sacrificial giver by the color of his skin. We need to be careful here, though. We need to be careful because if I am taking all your ping pong points, you might start to resent me. You might start thinking, that Roland, I'm sick of him taking my ping pong points. And you start to develop a resentment within your heart for me, even though I'm not necessarily the one taking them. There's a real danger here for believers to resent those of a different skin color and seeing them as the enemy. Our enemy is Satan. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the spiritual powers of darkness. Our enemy is not any person here. Our job is to share the gospel with them. But when this stuff starts happening and political things start rolling around and it starts agitating us, our temptation is to see those who are different than us and we become just as racist as the social justice movement is. And we cannot do that as examples of Jesus Christ, as ambassadors for the gospel. We cannot see people by the color of their skin or how much they have or don't have. Jesus Christ came to die for the world to change all people from the inside out if they would lay their life over to him. Biblical justice is, I mean, social justice is based on the external. Biblical justice based on the internal. Fourth comparison, it says, uh, what I want to say is this, just social justice ignores individual accountability. Biblical justice holds each one accountable for their own actions. Read verses 1 through 10. I can't necessarily go over them, but you got the story. Social justice advocates say that the wealthy have gotten their money illegitimately. The social justice doesn't look at you and see how you got your money. They look at your skin color, lump you with every other person your same skin color, and then they say you're an oppressor. It doesn't matter how much you've given to help those who are poor. It doesn't matter how much you have worked and overcome. Some of us have overcome great obstacles in life. We have worked hard. We were maybe born of of really um, 
poor family situation or we might overcome some learning disabilities or physical handicaps or just born in a part of a country where opportunities were not as fruitful as some other places and we have overcome because of the grace of Jesus Christ working in us. But that doesn't matter. You're, not, you're a particular color of skin. The social justice movement sees your skin and it judges you. It doesn't look at individual accountability. And it doesn't look at those who are needy and say, is this a legitimate reason for someone to be poor or are they just simply lazy? That if they would just work, they might make something of themselves. They don't look at individual accountability. Equal opportunity is great. It is great that everyone would get a shot at the ping pong game. I think that's a great thing. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But social justice advocates says everyone has to have the same outcome. If I struggled to get through my high school and my college and my seminary and I have worked the last 20 or 30 years to, to, in my particular field, that doesn't matter. Everyone should have the same outcome as me, is what social justice says. Whether or not they have done all that. Social justice doesn't take into account achievement or laziness. It doesn't see gifting or talents but biblical justice could be summed up in this maybe one passage, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if everyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading, and look what it says, undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Hear me well, I'm not saying every poor person is undisciplined and they deserve to be poor. I'm saying there are legitimate reasons for people to be poor and there's illegitimate reasons for people to be poor. And, they sh and each person should be held accountable for their actions. We are introduced to Ananias here. And Ananias um, comes and his, his problem, his, his issue isn't that he didn't give all the money to the church. That's not the problem. The problem is he sold a track of land for X amount of money and then he kept back a little bit of that and then he gave the church all, the, the rest of it and that's fine, but what he said is, I gave it all. This is, I'm not keeping any back, I'm giving everything. Just like, just like Barnabas did, but he didn't do it, and he was lying about it. He wanted the same praise as Barnabas got for not doing the same thing that Barnabas did. And God says, I'm not having it. And he killed him on the spot. But he didn't kill his wife on the spot, you noticed. It was just Ananias, because it was Ananias right there who lied. And then his wife came in later, and he, she had an opportunity did you give this much or this much? And she says, oh, we gave it all. We are really, really good folks. And God says, nope, you lied as well, and she was dead. Each one was held accountable for their own actions because that's biblical justice. We're not lumped into a group 
And then everyone judged by the outside, God looks at the heart and judges the heart. Social justice ignores individual accountability. Real justice holds each one accountable for what they did. Last comparison, and then I've got some lessons. Last comparison, social justice ignores God's standard. Biblical justice is given according to God's righteous standard. You can look at verse 4, 9, and 11, and that's where Peter says, you know, look at uh, verse 4, I'll read that. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He didn't have to sell the land. He could have kept it if he wanted it. That's fine. God wasn't forcing him. It's not coercive. Then he said, when, and then after it was sold, it was your, under your control. Once he had the money, he could do with it whatever he wanted to do. He'd give half of it to the, to the need. He didn't have to keep it all. I mean, he didn't have to give any of it is what I'm saying. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God, trying to pull over on God this lie. Something similar with, with the wife as well, Sapphira. See, we look at these issues, and, and social justice advocates will, will quote Scripture a lot, right out of context, but they'll quote it a lot. But here, Scripture does mandate us to help the poor. It also says to an able-bodied person, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's God's standards. We read here that God has a standard, and when those standards are not met, he meets out punishment. And what the, when the church saw it, great fear came over them because they saw that God has a standard, and we cannot meet it. We need a Savior, right? And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can meet this standard. And so thankfully Jesus has come and those who have placed their faith in him, he can work in us to do what God has called us to do. That we can have compassion that Jesus has. We can help the poor in, in a way that he has directed it. So that's my kind of feeble attempt to make some comparisons of social justice and, to, and biblical justice. To answer the question, is social justice the same as biblical justice? I would say biblical justice is real justice. It is justice. And social justice is injustice. That's what I would answer that question as. And I believe we could stand on the word and word of God and say that. But that's easy enough to say, they're all wrong. Rawr, you know, I'm mad and shake our fists. But what do we walk away with here to live like? And let me see if I can get through these pretty quick. I have four of them. I'll try to get through. But these are lessons that maybe we can learn if we look at this passage and thinking about biblical justice. First, helping the poor is giving them grace. I would, I would put it that way. The scripture says we're to give the poor justice. And I found that created a lot of confusion for me. Because as I was thinking about giving the poor what they deserve, in my context, in the American context, in the context that we have, we think, we, we think those that are decrying themselves as poor, and we say, but I don't have a cell phone that costs that much, you know, and I don't have a car that looks that good. I'm not sure that what you're saying is poverty is my form of poverty, you know, and so I, I'm, I'm confused about giving them what they deserve, and that's, that's very, 
that, that's, it just didn't connect with me. And then when I read scripture that says, give the poor justice, it, it was, it was a, I was having trouble with it. But when I see it as this, as a human being, a person who has a real legitimate need deserves to be treated as someone who has the image of God. I started seeing that as grace, giving someone what they don't deserve. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-9 says this, and this is, this is for us, this is for the church. Now I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Look what it says. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And look at this verse in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything that you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. The word justice and righteousness a lot of the time are the exact same word in the Old Testament. Justice is doing right. And he says here, if you sow sparingly and give a little to help people, and you'll reap sparingly. And that's not about money. I'm thinking, talking to the church in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about if we help a little bit, then we're only going to see a little bit of response from people toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we sow bountifully, if we sow bountifully, we're going to reap bountifully. If we help those in legitimate need, he says we're going to make, God will make sure we have everything we need to make sure we can do the good deed. Giving to the poor, helping the poor, helping those legitimately in need means we must not have so hard of heart that we don't help other people. That we shut our eyes to those in need. When, and I get, I get it's easy to, to see someone in need and say, they're not getting what I have in my pocket. I worked for that. But that's if it's your money. And it's not if you're a believer. It's God's. God gave us grace. And so that is not only, it's not only spiritual, but that grace also extends to how much he's given us physically. And that grace of Jesus must flow through us. Look in Proverbs 19, 17. The one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Helping the poor gives grace, and it's letting God borrow your money. And how much interest do you think God's going to pay you back? Right? Whether money or spiritually, it, I don't know, but it's lending to the Lord. Helping the poor is giving them grace. Lesson two. We should show no partiality in favor or against the poor. 
This sounds shocking, maybe, but we should not show partiality in favor or against the poor. Now, we know if we're believers and we know our scripture, we look in James and we know we're not supposed to give the rich man priority. We're not to favor those who have money and give them a nice seat down in front. Why don't you come right down here and sit right here, you who have all this money, and and treat them really good. James says, don't do that. But the scripture also says we don't treat, we don't swing the pendulum the other day, uh, the other way and, and give favor undue favor to the poor. Look what it says in Exodus 23, 2. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Look what it says. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. When a poor man comes up before a judge, he doesn't get more favorable of opinion simply because he doesn't have as much. He's supposed to have justice. It's not based on what he has. It's based on what's inside. Leviticus 19.15 echoes the same thing. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. You are to judge your neighbor fairly. The social justice movement says we have to treat poor people better instead of looking at a people and treating them based upon the the content of their character. And the Bible says we can't do that. We cannot pervert justice for the rich, and we cannot pervert justice for the poor. We need to have an attitude of fairness and real justice. And why? Because Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. They are all made in God's image. That's how we treat people. Not their checkbooks, not their wallets, not how what nice of a car. They are made in the image of God. That's lesson two. Third, it's not wrong to move inequities. Just because we don't believe that the social justice movement is a righteous movement doesn't mean that we should not work to remove inequities in our country or in our world. There are those who are born with disadvantages. There are those who are born to broken families and do not have the benefit of a stable family life. And that wrecks a kid. That's why the government is working to destroy the nuclear family. Because without that, there is no stability. And they must go to the government for help, those without Christ. There are those who are born who do not have the same access to quality education as another place. And there are those who are born in parts of the country that are simply poorer than others. So they don't have the same health, access to healthy food or health care system or whatever. And we can blame the parents and we can blame the government and we can blame the schools, but we cannot blame the children born into it. It's not their fault. And it's okay to look at somebody. It's not wrong to look at a child born into that. Someone who's an image of God-bearer 
and say, I want that child to have the same opportunities that I had, so what can I do to remove the inequities of the situation? Now, that doesn't mean they're guaranteed the same outcome, but what can we do? It's not wrong to do that. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 15. When we're thinking about those who are born into a situation where they are... they they are at a disadvantage, that, that is a real thing, and we can work toward helping remove those. It says in Deuteronomy fifteen seven, if there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, look what it says, you shall not harden your heart or close your hand from your poor brother but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there's no base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the seventh of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, God saying, I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. God says there's going to be poor with you. And we are to not harden our heart against him, but to generously give as the Lord directs. He commands us in that. Not close our hand, but to open it. It is not wrong to help remove inequities, to give somebody a shot who may not have that shot. Not coercively, voluntarily, someone your heart is against. That's what Operation Christmas Child's about. There is someone in another country who may not have the opportunities. We're going to give them something, and they will have the opportunity at the very least to hear the gospel. And maybe I can connect with that person. There are those who are in legitimate need and we should freely open our hand to them. Last lesson I'll leave you, and that's this. It's the church's responsibility to help the poor. It is the church's responsibility to help the poor. That's you and I. Here's the thing, and there's really no getting around it. God created the government to dispense real justice in this world and God created the church to dispense grace. And when the government attempts to dispense grace, charity, it's not fulfilling its God-ordained purpose, and it doesn't do it well. In fact, it distorts it and does it wrong and creates 
Not grace, but an injustice. When its job is to do justice, it actually produces injustice when it tries to do the church's job. And what the church has tried to do is stop dispensing grace, and we say, we're going to give them what they deserve. They're not getting anything from us. And we start distorting grace and make it not grace. And we are known not as those who have a Savior who was went to the poor and the needy and those who really needed it. We get known as those who have closed fists and are not getting anything from us. In fact, one of the reasons the government has come in and did that is because while the church has been known as one of the more uh, forceful Uh, proponents of helping the poor for the last 2,000 years. I mean, they would take, early church would take in pagan babies that were left in sacrifice. They were left on hills and the church would bring them in and raise them as their own. It's Christian churches that started hospitals. That's why um, every hospital's got some sort of saint's name on it, right? Because, Because it's Christian ideology and Christian theology that moves people to help them. Our public school system in this country was started because parents wanted their kids to read the Bible so they could be armed against Satan's attack. And so that's where public school system started. You can think of how the, the, the church for thousands, of, the last couple thousand years have been the proponents of helping the poor. But in, I, I don't know when it happened, but I would say mid to late 19th or maybe 19th century or eight. 20th century, the church began to say, you know what we'll do? We'll get a Christian ministry to take care of this. We'll we'll have a Christian ministry dedicated to helping the poor. But God didn't give the job to Christian ministries. He gave it to the church. And the Christian ministry is not a church. And then the Christian ministries did well, but they can't do all that needs to be done And so the government begins to help those in need. And so the church has relegated some of that responsibility to the government and said, we don't want to help the poor. And the government says, fine, we'll do it. And we have swapped roles, God-ordained roles. The church should be known for helping the poor because we have been called individually and corporately to help the poor. Look what it says in Ephesians 4.28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? Why are we to not steal and to work so that he'll have something to share with the one who has need? And in the famous passage, Jesus tells us this, Jesus talking, At the end of time, he says, I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he said to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, To one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. It's our responsibility to help those who have legitimate needs. It is. 
And I'll finish with one verse here that reminds us what God demands from us. Those who are his children, this is what he demands. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But look what it says. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I'm going to have you bow your heads. To do justice, real justice. And that involves helping the poor, the real poor. And to love kindness. To love, the Hebrew word is hased. It is the loyal love of God. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I don't know if this, first of all, answered the question. I hope it did. But second, I hope it challenged us. Because the issue isn't really how bad social justice is, I think we all know it isn't biblical. The real lesson for the church is, are we dispensing biblical justice in this world? Not railing against those who deserve it, not putting punishment on those we think we've decided who need it, but instead treating people as the image of God. Helping the widows and the orphans and the strangers who are oppressed and the needy. Are we helping? Are we allowing God to move in our hearts to minister to others in that way? God, we come to you. And God, we know we are not perfect. And God, when the government gets involved in things, they just get things so messed up and and it seems like there's no, there's no way out. But help us to just um, lay that aside for a minute and think about what you have called us to do, regardless of what the government's doing, regardless of what's happening in a culture. These commands are to us, period, to do this, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So help us be a church that's known as, as your ambassadors that reflect the love of Jesus and the kindness he had to the tax collectors and the sinners and those who were lame and those who were blind and those who had bleeding issues and, and those who had leprosy, all the outcasts of society. He came and he loved them and, and touched them and talked with them and and healed them and helped them and help us be your ambassadors. Give us a heart for those in need. And like Deuteronomy say, let, let us not harden our heart when we see those in need, but instead open our, open our fists and let you do the work to take what you want, to put in what you want, God, we, we ask this not so that we would be seen good by our culture because that's not our concern and not so that we will feel good because that's not our concern. God, we do this and we ask this so that your gospel would be known to all. 
that our church would be known as those who have all kinds of races and all kinds of nationalities. And, and God, people from all different social economic places so that we would, that, that this church, that Rosemont would be a little glimpse of what heaven would be like. People from all over, but, but as one because of the Holy Spirit, that we would worship together and serve our community together for your glory and that more and more people would come to know you. So God, as we think of real justice and we think of this church early in Acts, that gave as needed. Help us not be Ananias and Sapphira looking to give, to get a little bit, of, little bit of pat on the back, to make us look one way or the other, but just let us give like Barnabas, sacrificially and encouraging because we, we saw a need and we responded to your leadership. And God, if there's anyone here who's got a hard heart for the poor, hard heart for those in need, I pray that you would soften us today. I know sometimes I need it, God. And it's not sometimes. I need it a lot of time. And so God, help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us be those who share the gospel with those who need it, no matter what they look like, no matter how much they have. Let us be the people that are about redemption and about your justice to help those in need and your love and grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have you stand for a minute and we'll just have a real brief time of response. I don't know how God would cause you to respond. Maybe it's just a personal time of praying where you're at and saying, I just, God, give me, let me see the people you want me to see. Maybe we've just had our blinders on and not seen those in our town. We have needy here. We have single moms who are abused who can't find a home because, because their husband has left them and they are working one job, but they're also trying to help their, their kid. And right now their kid can't go to school all the time and they're just in need and we need to help them. Or there's those with, with physical handicaps and they cannot do what, what's required to do for a job or or what, there, there's all kinds of needs. And I, we can't fix them all, but God can lead us individually to the situation he wants us to be involved in. So maybe we just need to open our eyes to that. Or maybe as a church, we, we, we pray together and say, God's leading us to help in this area, a particular area of need. However he causes, calls you to respond, you do so as we sing. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 10.45 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.